We're going to head today to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I do invite you to turn there with me. Before we head there, just one quick thing I want to share with you. Uh, I've, I've kind of felt this nudge, maybe you could even call it a prompting. Uh, Jesus uh, said in the Gospels that my house shall be called a house of prayer. And so just most recently, I've just felt this, this nudging and this leaning that as a congregation, we could and should build into our rhythm of worship a time of prayer for our church. And so beginning uh, the first Thursday in June, and then every first Thursday afterward, from 7 p.m. till about 8 p.m., we're going to gather over in the chapel uh, for a time of prayer. It's not a worship service. It's not. There's no sermon. There may or may not be music. It's just a time to come together and pray for our world, our church, and for each other. So I hope you'll join me the first Tuesday or Thursday, first Thursday in June, June 2nd from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. over in the chapel. So there's a, there's a film that I, I've seen multiple times that I have a bit of a love-slash-hate relationship with. It's called The Gray. It stars Liam Neeson. I love Liam Neeson. He's like my favorite actor. I've seen almost all of his movies. In this particular film, he plays a man named John Otto, who is a sharpshooter that works for an Alaskan oil refinery, and his job is to protect oil workers from wolves. Uh, that's his whole, his whole deal, his whole shtick. So, uh, he's sent on leave vacation with a bunch of other oil workers and they're in a small prop plane flying over Alaska and it crashes in the wilderness. And there's about eight people that survive and they are, lo and behold, hunted by wolves. Towards the end of the film, there's only one person left, Liam Neeson or John Otto. And the very last scene, now if you've not seen it, Sorry, it's too late. It's old. You should have seen it by now. I'm ruining it for you. In the very last scene, uh, he's surrounded by a pack of wolves, and he breaks a couple of bottles and duct tapes them or medical tapes them to his hands to form like these claws, and there's the wolves, and there's him, and then it ends. That's it. I'm like, that's it? Like, like, does he live? Does he die? I don't know. Why would you do that? Well, I shared this story some time ago, and someone walked up to me and said, you know, there's a, a scene after the credits, and it will be, I'm like, okay. So I went back and watched the scene after the credits, and all it shows is his hand and some blood on the glass, and that's it. And you still don't really know for sure who lives and who dies, and it drives me crazy because I have an addiction to certainty. Like, I need to know how things end. I need to know how the story plays out. Sometimes the need for certainty can itself become an idol. Keeping God captive to what we can fully understand is what often caused idolatry in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It's why often you hear God speaking to his people, why do you make 
these carved images. Well, they made carved images because there was this need to touch, to see, to feel, to hold. It's what happened when the Israelites were freed from Egypt. They're out in the desert. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. He's given the Ten Commandments. And he's taken too long up there. The people at the bottom are getting restless. And so they say to their priest, Aaron, make us an image so that we can worship. We don't know what happened to Moses. And so they make a golden calf out of jewelry and they worship it. And Moses comes down and he's angry and was, what's, they, they needed certainty. The idol of certainty can rob us of the wonder and mystery of who God is. Our, nerd, our, our need for certainty can cause a bit of existential angst in our journey of faith. 27 years ago, I was an intern at a church in the inner city of Chicago. I spent the summer there with a couple of pastors, and one of the pastors that I worked with only read and only taught out of the King James Version of the Bible, which in and of itself is fine. But he said, if someone can prove to me that the King James Version is not the only authorized Bible, I'll walk away from the Christian faith. And I said, like, that's it? That's all it will take? Because really the, the only authorized version was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, unless you can read that you're reading a translation. So what do you do when life's not clear? What do you do when faith is confusing and there are not neat and tidy answers to all the questions that we have? Here's what I'm hoping for today. I hope some of you will be encouraged by uh, our diving into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Others of us, I hope, will experience a bit of, of conviction, a challenge. And then for others, I just, I just hope you extend to me some grace because I might just irritate you. So just let's all just kind of be in this together. Because listen, I don't believe the world is black and white. Sometimes it's colored in shades of gray. Not to be confused with a book with a similar title. So we are in a series called Mind Games. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. <laughs> We're in a series called Mind Games. First uh, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in a city called Corinth, and he's writing because there is some chaos, some dysfunction, there is a lack of integrity. Many of you are familiar with First Corinthians chapter 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Simply meaning I'm a bunch of irritating noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This passage is often read at weddings. We're headed into wedding season. I've got a full docket of ceremonies I'm performing, and I'm sure several of them will contain a reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is fine and good because it is a good descriptor of love, but I'm going to burst some bubbles today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has absolutely nothing to do with marriage, absolutely nothing to do with weddings, and when you read it at a wedding, it's only a very slim part of what this passage is already, what it's about. So if you're getting married and you're going to read this, and I just ruined it, sorry. (laughs) This passage is written to a church in disunity. This passage, there are two challenges that are addressed. There's an offer of hope, and then a simple next step. So we're going to walk through these together, beginning with the first challenge, which is this. You and I, we only know part of the story, which is why we read in verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. We don't see the whole thing. If I can completely comprehend and figure out all of the vastness of who God is with the three-pound mass that sits inside my skull that is he really God. Terrence Dickinson in his book, The Universe and Beyond, helps us put our lives and our thoughts about God in perspective when he writes, if we could travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. I mean, first of all, wrap your mind around that. 186,000 miles per second. It would take us 80,000 years just to cross our own Milky Way. Our galaxy alone contains 200 billion stars, like our sun. Once leaving our galaxy, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it would take 42,000 years just to get to the next closest galaxy from the center of our own. There are more than 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It would take us 156 billion years traveling at the speed of light to cross the entire universe. This is Vast and God stands outside of all of it. His presence permeates the entire universe. God is at work in the ongoing creation of new planets and stars and galaxies. God rules over the vastness of the universe and sustains it all by His power. 
Our galaxy is but one small part of God's cosmos. Our planet is but one speck in our galaxy. And each of us is one of seven billion people living in this moment in time. As one subatomic particle is to my entire body, so I am to the entire cosmos. Which is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 8, When I look to your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? He goes on in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high, I cannot attain it. The Apostle Paul writes, for we only know in part, we see as a reflection vaguely in a mirror. God is revealed to us Only that which he wants us to know. And sometimes I make God really small with my black and white thinking. It's challenging because because sometimes I have these moments in life that show up completely uninvited and absolutely unexpected. Like when I graduated from college, I applied for a job that I thought I was highly qualified for, I deserved, I wanted, and I didn't get it. And I knew the guy that did. Unqualified jerk. I just <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. I was the perfect candidate. My wife and I lost two children to miscarriage. I, I don't get it. My wife experienced the sudden and tragic loss of her mom. She was 59 years old. Why in the world would that happen? Both my kids were NICU babies. I don't understand it. Where does this fit in my neat theology? And I don't really have a good answer for any of these things. Oh, I can quote all the scripture passages. God causes all things to work out for the good. I I get it. But when you're sitting in the NICU unit, (laughs) what you really believe starts to materialize because sometimes we face serious challenges in our thinking about God leaving us a little bit unsettled. And yet I still have this preoccupation with being right. This preoccupation with being certain. And because of that, sometimes we use the Bible more as a weapon than we do a revelation of who God is. And you may say, yeah, well, I just, I follow the Bible. No, you don't. Nobody really completely follows the Bible. Let me prove it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20, we read these words. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I wonder if any of you, when you walked in today, were greeted with a kiss. I mean, I'm still working on holy hugging. That's, that's a stretch for me. Or consider these words from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl for he's violated her and he can never divorce her as long as she lives, as he lives. So I have a daughter and I, I, don't, I, I don't think I would follow Deuteronomy 22. I mean, I think what I would follow is, is law enforcement, guns, and lawyers is probably what would happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, a woman should cover her head. 
and a man ought not cover his head. How many men wear ball caps? First Peter chapter two, slaves submit to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Like these verses don't fit with black and white thinking. Black and white thinking distorts reality because what the scripture is is a progressive revelation of who God is and his goodness permeating through culture, working its way to the book of Genesis when everything, or book of Revelation when everything becomes clear. See, black and white thinking is a pattern of thinking in absolutes. Those in the mental health field consider this to be a cognitive distortion because it keeps you seeing life how it really is. Complex, uncertain, constantly changing, which is why the Apostle Paul writes in verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And don't think modern day mirror because they didn't have modern day mirrors. Their mirrors in the Apostle Paul's day was basically a polished piece of metal. So you could kind of see your reflection, but a very distorted version. And so the challenge is you don't, you don't always see things clearly. You don't have it figured out. You might even be wrong on some things, and that's okay. For we only know in part. We know what God has revealed to us through the scripture. We know what God has revealed to us through the amazing wonders of creation. But we also have doubts. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, once wrote, only evil people and madmen don't have doubts. What we have is a journey of faith. The theologian Walter Brueggemann says our journey of faith is one of order, disorder, and reorder. I mean, Jesus entered into a world of order. Jesus entered into a world in which everyone thought they had it all figured out. God was neatly packaged. And so Jesus steps into a world when everyone thinks they're right. But then, see, sometimes something happens that causes us to ask questions and we experience disorder. You ever experience disorder? Jesus was a master and allowing people to experience disorder so they could draw closer to the Father's heart. I mean, just think about the way Jesus built his team, the way Jesus called his disciples. See, first he calls Matthew, who's a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated. They were considered traitors by the people of Israel, their own people. They were extortionists. They were thieves. They exploited people. And at the very same time, he calls another guy named Simon. He was called Simon the Zealot. Now, most believe that Simon was a part of a group called the Zealots, which was a religious political group. And the Zealots, they believed in restoring the kingdom back to Israel. They were passionate about it. They wanted to usher in a theocracy, and they were willing to use violence to get it done and overthrow the Roman Empire. So now to give you like a modern day perspective on who these two groups were historically, I want you to consider the most alt-right conservative you can think of. Just, I mean, way right. And then think of the most progressively liberal person you can think of. And then put them on the same team and tell them to get along. That's Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. 
I'm sure there were some robust discussions on Jesus' team. But Jesus said, you've you got you to think differently about those that you consider the other. Just complete disorder. Jesus brings us all together so we, he can show us the heart of the Father. Yeah, our life always experiences disorder. Well, when I was in college, I went to a college that was uh, very strict, uh, very strict theolo- theologically, always gave us the answers, very strict dress code. Uh, I had to wear a suit and tie to church every Sunday, which was terrible. Uh, we had to wear collared shirt, dress pants tucked in you know, to class every day. Our hair could not be below our ear. We had to sign a paper that said we would not go to movies, we would not dance, and we would not drink alcohol. Now, it was actually a relatively good experience, especially for where I was at life at that time. And I, I, I actually enjoyed going there. But, but imagine, so, so then I graduate and I move out west and I attend a seminary in Pasadena, California. Now, at this seminary, uh, they didn't tell you what to think, they taught you how to think. And imagine my surprise when at first year student orientation, my group leader showed up in shorts, flip-flops, carrying beer. (laughs) What is going on right now? (laughs) There's a little bit of disorder. But what that experience and many experience like it did for me is it caused me to reorder my life more around trust than certainty. The word believe and the word faith in the New Testament means trust more than it means right set of ideas. Like, I don't have it all figured out, and that's okay. Because there's a second challenge. Like, what do you do when orthodoxy and real life collide? Our very real life will collide with our religious faith. It's why we say things like, if God is so good, then why did it happen? Or if God is my provider, then why didn't it happen? Or like, I have, like, I personally have a a Christian worldview and a biblical ethic, which I do not apologize for, but at times can be at tension with the culture we live in. Right now, there are shifts in culture that are out of alignment with the traditional Christian worldview and ethic. It's almost like a tsunami is forming. You know what a tsunami is, right? The tectonic plates shift in the ocean, causing a massive wave that hits the shore and causes massive destruction. There's a massive shift happening in culture on multiple levels, causing a bit of a cultural tsunami. I mean, so what, what do we do about it? Because it's one thing to talk about issues. Like, take any hot-button issue right now. Take anything. Take abortion, politics, gender and sexuality, COVID. And I have strong opinions on these, and my opinions lean towards a traditional Christian ethic and worldview. But how do I, as a person of faith, enter into this when it's not just an issue, but it's a name, a face, and a story? Now, some of us, as we enter culture, take a militaristic approach we're in a war, we got to fight, we're in a battle. And yes, some of our beliefs and some of the ethics of the Christian faith will clash with culture. But that's not the problem. The problem is our approach. Because see, in a war, it's very hard to turn the other cheek. In a war, you punch back and you punch hard. It's almost as if we think, as Christians, we've joined 
Cobra Kai, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Forgetting that in the New Testament, the metaphor for followers of Christ, it's not warriors, it's ambassadors. For you are Christ's ambassadors. But sometimes we trade in our diplomatic visas for dog tags and fight in a way diametrically opposed to how Jesus actually engaged the world. Jesus didn't see issues. Jesus always saw people. Luke chapter 8, Jesus encounters a Roman centurion. He's a man who needs a miracle and begs Jesus for one. Jesus doesn't look at him and see the hand of Roman oppression, the enemy of Israel, worshiper of pagan gods. What he sees is a man in desperate need of something beyond himself. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is eating at a banquet, a former religious dinner with the most important religious people of his day. And while he's sitting there, a woman learns that he's in town and this woman shows up and begins to cry and wash his feet with her tears, dry his feet with her hair. And oh, by the way, she's a prostitute and the religious work, religious leaders and Pharisees saw a sex worker, but Jesus saw a woman in need of salvation and redemption. Luke chapter 10, he meets a man named Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, and we already talked about what Israel thinks about those. He's an extortionist. Jesus doesn't see a thief. He sees a man in desperate need of transformation. And in John chapter 8, A woman is brought before Jesus who's caught in the act of adultery. Now, every time I read this story, I always say, well, where's the man? Like, it takes two. What? But Jesus doesn't see an adulteress. He sees a woman in need of compassion and forgiveness and direction. See, the strict fundamentalists of Jesus' day had a very black and white response to all these things. But Jesus saw things a bit more gray. I mean, the centurion should have been dismissed. He was a Gentile. But Jesus offered healing. The prostitute should have been tossed out for her vile lifestyle, but Jesus offered forgiveness. The tax collector should have been condemned and maybe under Jewish law, even killed, but Jesus offered a new direction. And the woman caught cheating, well, she was offered mercy. See, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, here's the hope in all of this. Someday everything's going to become clear. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. When I live with God in eternity, it will all become clear in a moment. Now I've... Heard people say, and maybe I've even said, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have all kinds of questions for God. No, you won't, because in that moment, it will become clear, all of it. So in the meantime, while we're here together and we only know in part, let's enter the gray with this question. What does Christ's love ask of me right now? And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I believe love is the greatest because love is the only one that is eternal. Faith isn't eternal. Faith is confidence in what we do not see. And when we're in eternity, we won't need to have faith because we'll, we'll be there. We'll be in God's presence. We won't need hope because hope is believing for something to happen and it will have happened. 
But love is the essence of who God is, and it will last forever. And that kind of love, that kind of love sees people, not issues. That kind of love, yes, it challenges, but it doesn't irritate, and it certainly doesn't hate. Love is the closest thing that we get to see of God this side of heaven. This is what John writes in the book of 1 John chapter 4. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. And oh, by the way, love never fails. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor love others. It's not self-seeking. I know many of us have heard these words over and over, and we're like, oh, I know love. But, but listen, like, listen, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hope, always perseveres. Love never fails. So this week, let's enter into the gray together. Maybe our faith needs a little more flex to make room for the mystery and the wonder of who God is. Because faith is deep trust more than it is firm answers. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. In my, my hope, my prayer, our next step this week is can we get a little more comfortable was saying things like, I don't know. I don't fully understand. But I trust. I trust in a God who stands outside of it all and sees it all. If God can see the vastness of our universe, then God can see the complexity of our life and meet us there. Because we trust in one who makes all the difference. So help me, God, to trust in my moments of questions, my moments of frustration, my moments of doubts. Help me to trust. Help me to trust and help me to see people, not issues. And help me to love like you loved. Help me to be your ambassador, your representative on earth.